Philippians chapter 1, our sermon text today contains one of the greatest and most glorious statements in all of Scripture. The Apostle Paul writing, he's in prison, and he declares words, no doubt, that are familiar to many of you when he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Our sermon title is A Win-Win Situation. A win-win situation. And what we have seen, as John mentioned earlier, at the beginning of chapter 1, there's an expression of gratitude for partnership. There's an expression of affection. He says in verse 7, I hold you in my heart. He says that he yearns for them in verse 8 with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then he prays a particular prayer for them in verses 9 through 11. And then he gives an update on his current circumstances in verses 12 through 18, which he views with great joy, though he is in prison, because God is using his suffering to advance the gospel. Uh, The whole Roman guard has learned that he was there in prison for Christ in verse 13. Various guards throughout uh, the, the Roman imperial guard would be chained to Paul during the day. He saw that as a golden evangelism opportunity. And as guards rotated through, he would share the gospel with them so that it became known among these thousands and thousands of guards that his imprisonment was for Christ. Uh, Also, through his imprisonment, we see that the majority of Christians in Rome were filled with courage in evangelism. Do you see that in verse 14? There was the majority of men and women who, through his imprisonment, became much more bold to speak the word for Christ. May it be that that kind of evangelism explosion takes place in this church family, even as you prepare for the bridge in the fall. And then we see that even some Christians who were in the wrong and who were sinning against Paul were preaching Christ, and so their ministry, in fact, filled him with joy. He says in verse 18, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And so he says, in case you're tempted to feel bad about me, in case you're tempted to pity me, far from it. Uh, I am in prison, but here is my current circumstances. I am rejoicing because the gospel is advancing. And then having considered the present, Paul now transitions in our text to share his plans for the future and his outlook concerning the future. When there is great difficulty in our lives and when there is great uncertainty in the future, the Spirit of Christ delights to give His people joy and hope and courage. And that's what we see beginning in the second half of verse 18 through verse 26, which is our sermon text for today. Let's look, chapter 1 of Philippians, beginning in the end of verse 18. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers... And the help of the Holy and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. May God bless the preaching of his word. Admiral James Stockdale was held captive as a prisoner of war for eight years during the Vietnam War. He was tortured more than 20 times before finally making it home. Admiral Stockdale was asked what made the difference between prisoners who lost hope and gave up and those who endured such great difficulty. And the difference, he said, was a kind of hopeful realism is what he described. In fact, one of the things that he said when he was later interviewed, do you know who didn't do well? He said it was the idealists and the optimists who didn't do well. They convinced themselves that they would be home by Christmas and they caved when year after year Christmas came and went. Stockdale was among those who survived and he says that this is what made the difference. They were honest about their suffering and yet they knew that they would eventually triumph. He said this, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline of to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Faith is not ignoring the most brutal facts of your current reality. Christianity does not ignore the most brutal facts of your current reality. We need the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of our current reality, whatever they may be, and then to find the kind of Christian courage that functions in the midst of that realistic outlook. The Apostle Paul had confronted the brutal facts of his current reality. He is imprisoned. This is the great apostle who lived to travel and preach Christ where he had not been named, but here he is. He is imprisoned. He had been in prison for several years. He is awaiting trial. He is not knowing whether the impending judicial proceedings would result in execution or his release. He's essentially, in other words, at the place of needing to wait and see what the future holds. And we too, when we think about our own lives, can recognize that in various ways we face an unknown future. As we look at the days ahead, each one of us has various points of uncertainty, things that are unknown. The days ahead for some of you may look especially dark and difficult and even miserable. There may be things ahead that have created fear in your heart, that have stirred anxiety within you that have tempted you to discontentment and bitterness. We look to the future and at times we wrestle with fear and great uncertainty. That was 
Paul's situation in terms of an unknown future, but here's the remarkable thing about his outlook. He not only rejoices, as we saw in the previous text there, rejoices in his present situation, but he is also filled with joy and confidence as he looks to the future. In prison, looking to the future, this is remarkable. Uncertain outcome, awful situation, possible execution, and the determination to rejoice. That's the Christian position. He says in verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice. People were able to visit Paul. I imagine some Christian who was visiting Paul there while he was under house arrest saying, Paul, how are you feeling about the present? How are you feeling about the future? And I imagine Paul saying that it is rejoicing. It is eager expectation. He looks at the days ahead with full courage, with confidence in Christ. He says, the way that I look at it, my future is looking really incredible. And so what I want to do is just pause there and say, how can we have that kind of perspective of the future, especially in the midst of great difficulty? This passage contains the secret to, to gospel happiness in gloomy times. The Christian is one who can say, my trials are great, but my joy is greater because my God is greater than all my trials. This is not, we must understand, and there's so much confusion around this point. This is not false optimism. This is not the power of positive thinking. This is theologically informed realism that expresses itself in the Christian life in the form of joy and in the form of hope. This is the difference that theology makes in living. This is why truth matters. Knowing doctrine matters for living. This section of Scripture matters a lot to me as a pastor because I am concerned that there are far too many Christians who are controlled by fear and discouragement. And there are some who have not learned to suffer well who have not learned to face the future with confidence in Christ. And here's what God is doing today, is fortifying in His people this kind of hope. God is on the move through Paul's example, instructing us, and the God of hope intends to fill us today with all joy and peace in believing, as Paul says in Romans 15, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope is the goal of this passage. So let's learn from three points, a confident hope, a difficult decision, and a consuming passion. First, a confident hope, and this is found in verses 18 through 20. Paul says he is rejoicing because he knows this will turn out for his deliverance. Turn out for my deliverance, that phrase is the exact words used by Job in the Old Testament in, Greek, in Paul's Greek Old Testament. In Job 13, verses 15 and 16 is where Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And then he says, this will be my salvation, or this will turn out for my deliverance. You see, Paul was in prison and he was remembering the suffering of Job. 
and he quotes Job here to be strengthened by Paul's example. And we too remember the example of Job and can be fortified in our faith concerning the future. Here's a really important question to understand this passage. What does Paul mean by deliverance? When he says, this will turn out for my deliverance, that's something that every one of us can say regarding our future and regarding whatever present trial you may face. This will turn out for my deliverance. It's not something that many Christians have learned to say, but it's something that every Christian ought to be able to say. But what does it mean when he says deliverance? This is not a deliverance from prison. He's not saying, I know for a fact that I'm going to be released from prison. This is not merely this deliverance. Sometimes people say, well, is this a reference to our final deliverance in heaven? Verse 20 explains the deliverance in view is the absence of being ashamed the presence of courage, and the honor of Christ in his life, whether by life or by death. That's the deliverance. In other words, it's a deliverance that will happen whether he dies or whether he lives. The deliverance is this, that rather than sinning and despairing, he will honor Christ come what may. And Christian, this is your deliverance. This is your eager expectation and hope. In other words, your deliverance is not the removal of difficulty. It is the renown of Christ in your life. And the shame that we seek to avoid is not the shame of imprisonment or death. It is not the shame of poverty or powerlessness. It's the shame of failing to honor the Lord who has saved us. It's the shame of bringing reproach upon his name. And so I would remind you that every opportunity you face, even death itself, is an opportunity to experience the deliverance of exalting Jesus Christ. Every difficulty, every trial, every valley you face, including the one that you are presently in or the one that looms on the horizon, is an opportunity to embrace the deliverance of honoring Christ. And you may look at the greatness of your difficulty and say, well, one thing, I am not the Apostle Paul, and I can't do it. You may be, in other words, aware of your great weakness, and there's a sense in which you are right. On your own, you cannot do it. But look at this. There are two means of deliverance at the beginning of verse 19 that God has provided for you today. How does this deliverance come? Not through self-confidence, not through willpower, not through planning and organization. There it is, verse 19. He says, I know. So here's that confidence. I know that through one, your prayers, and two, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The prayers of God's people and the provision of God's Spirit. Did you know every one of us needs the prayers of others? This is part of why we need to be connected into a church family. This is part of why we need to be meaningfully connected into a small group so that we can show up. I show up in my community group and I'm sharing, here's how I need you to pray for me. If the Apostle Paul needed prayers of the people of God when he was in prison, I can assure you that you and I do as well. We don't keep our greatest needs and our trials to ourselves, but instead it's God's intent that we open up and that we share our lives with others. 
and that we experience the grace that comes as others pray for us. And that is the means, one of them, through which we experience the deliverance through which we are empowered to honor Christ. And then second means of deliverance is, gloriously, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So for all who are aware of your weakness today, in the face of difficulty and suffering, for all who are aware of your own inability, here is seriously good news. The Spirit of Christ is helping us to live for the honor of Christ, whatever the future may hold. I wonder... Think about your own life. I wonder if anyone here is in need of help today. Do you stand in need of help? Well, the good news is that not only has Jesus died and rose again for us, he has sent a helper, and Christ himself, through the Holy Spirit, now dwells within us to help us in time of need. Friends, think of the many ways throughout your life that you have been delivered throughout your life, delivered from fear, helped in trial, strengthened with joy. God has all along been enabling you and empowering you to live for the glory of Christ. Our God is a deliverer. The deliverance that is our hope is not so much a testimony to our own strength. It is a testimony to the strength and the power of God who delivers. And so we watch and see again and again in the pages of our lives how God rescues and delivers and strengthens us. We look back on the past and we can consider that all our lives He has been faithful, that all our lives He has been so good to us, that He has strengthened us to honor Him again and again, and that He will do so again and again in the future. When we pray for each other, God uses those prayers to fill us with His Spirit, thereby sustaining and strengthening us through every dark valley. God wants us, brothers and sisters, to have that same confident hope today so that you too can say with Paul, I know that this will be the case. He's not uncertain about this deliverance. He's confident in it because he's confident in the character of God. I know this will be the case. People who love me are praying for me. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is helping me, and therefore I am rejoicing. Therefore I am full of courage because every hardship and every loss in my life will work out for the deliverance of honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a confident hope. And it's the hope that God desires each one of us to have today. Second, second point, a difficult decision. The idea of honoring Christ by life or by death at the end of verse 20 is now expanded in the rest of this passage. Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Verse 23, I am hard pressed between the two. So, okay, hypothetically, if I could choose between life and death, which we can't do, Paul says, which would I choose? Basically, he's saying, okay, group activity, everyone. Let's weigh the pros and the cons. Do I want to live or do I want to die? And he says that he doesn't know. He says that, that I cannot tell. He says that he's torn. He's hard-pressed. Now, here's the thing to track. For us, we tend to be torn because, at times, both options are unappealing. Life is sad and hard. Death is sadder and harder. For Paul, he's 
hard pressed between what he sees as two really, really good and desirable options. Paul considers every possible outcome, including death itself, and he says it's a win-win situation. This, I, I've, I have studied closely the example of the Apostle Paul in this letter of Philippians, and it is astonishing to me because he is radiating joy in the midst of prison. I have thought again and again, what kind of gospel-centered craziness is at work here? How can I become more like this great saint? And the way to get there, this is what the Apostle Paul has said. He has said, my starting point is that Christ and His glory is everything to me. This is what I care about in life. Not my own comfort, but the glory of Christ in me. I live for His glory. Because His steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise Him. And all of life will be spent for His glory. This is my one consuming passion, that Christ be honored in my life. And then from that starting point, he says... Let's weigh the benefits of ongoing life with the benefits of impending death for those who are consumed with the glory of Christ. And it is this outlook. He basically says, okay, I see a lot of Christ-exalting advantages to life, but death also has a lot going for it in terms of honoring Christ and exalting Christ. This is an outlook that is absolutely life-changing and transformative. This priority of the honor of Christ in our lives changes absolutely everything. He's not choosing the lesser of two evils. He's choosing the greater of two goods. And rather than consider the negatives in each scenario, as some miserable Christians are always inclined to do, he is reflecting on the positives and the benefits of each. He's not saying that life is so worthless and meaningless that he would rather die to escape the misery of sin and weakness and suffering. You know, sometimes when we talk about being ready for heaven, we sometimes go on and on about how awful life is. That's not what Paul is doing here. Both options have joy. Verse 22 if I am to live in the flesh, so if I go on living, that means fruitful labor for me. At the same time, verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. In death, we dwell with Christ. In life, we bear fruit for the good of others and for the glory of Christ. Either way, the Christian can say, my future in Christ is bright because he will be honored. Notice, however, one option for him personally is not just better, it is far better. And the reason for that, the text says, is that because when the Christian dies, we will be with Christ. And his presence is far greater and more glorious than all the treasures that this world has to offer. Death is not the end. For the Christian, there is life after death. Christ died in our place and rose on the third day to triumph over sin and death in order to freely give us eternal life with Him, that we would be with Him forever, that we would enjoy Him for all eternity, that we would dwell in a world of love 
enjoying fellowship with the triune God among the people of God. Never forget this. Being a Christian transforms the way we view death. All of life and death itself. Dennis Johnson says this, what makes death gain is not the earthly misery that it puts behind us, but the heavenly delight into which it will usher us. The delight of being with the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Paul's desire to depart from life on this earth is ignited by longing to be as near to Christ as possible. I wonder, do you have that desire? That desire to be as near to Christ as possible is departing. See, for the unbeliever, there is only fear. There is only uncertainty. There is only certain judgment and condemnation. But for the believer, it is departing and being with Christ. It is the outcome of our salvation. Is departing and being with Christ a glorious thing in your eyes? I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to number your days. With each passing day, we are closer and closer to the presence of Christ. Think about death. Prepare to die well. Do not fear the grave. Love the Lord. Set your heart on heaven. Treasure the presence of Christ above all this world has to offer. You young people, the world may seem to be so full of treasures and joys. Count it all loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Nearness to Him. Eternity with Him. This is our treasure. And we are in this world pilgrims traveling to our heavenly homeland, citizens of heaven, longing more than anything to see King Jesus and to be with him. John G. Patton was planning to go as a missionary to the South Sea Islands. Two London missionaries were the first to attempt to bring the gospel there in 1839, but they were, they were killed and eaten by cannibals. Uh, only minutes after arriving. And this was around 20 years later that John Patton was setting sail to that same island. And some people cautioned him against it. There was an older saint who warned him, you will be eaten by cannibals. And Patton's famous reply was this. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. To live is Christ. To die is gain. When Paul considers in this dilemma, what is best for himself, it is to be with Christ. But it's interesting, as he considers others, it is his love for the church that triumphs. He says, to remain is more necessary for you. He wants his life to be spent for the glory of Christ in others. For the good of others, for the glory of Christ in others. That was more important to him, in fact, than immediately 
being with Christ in heaven. And so he looks to the interests of others and desires for his own life to be spent for the good of others and the glory of Christ, which leads to our last, our third and final point, which is a consuming passion. A consuming passion. The center of this passage, the anthem of the Christian soul, the motto of our lives, put it on a bumper sticker, hang it on your, the walls of your house, verse 21. This is Paul's consuming passion, and it sums it all up. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What are you living for? This is the meaning of all of life. Your, your main goal, some of you need to hear this, and it will be adjusting for how you are living your life. Your main goal in life cannot be prosperity. Your main goal in life cannot be getting married and having kids. It cannot be good health. Your main goal is seeing the Lord Jesus Christ honored in your life, whether you have little or much, whether you are married or single, whether you bear children or you are unable to conceive, whether in good health or whether you are experiencing illness and chronic pain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Count Zinzendorf said, I have but one enthusiasm. It is He, only He. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To say that is to say that your life is defined by this consuming passion. That your life is defined by your union with Christ. It's to say, I live to treasure Him. I live to exalt Him. I live for His glory all my days. What makes life worth living is that it will be spent in fruitful labor for Him. I remember reaching the end of my high school years. I had been a Christian for one or two years, and God very clearly pressed upon my heart, there is no one in your life who would say that they love Christ more because of the impact you've had on them. And I remember stepping into college with great resolve that my life would be spent for the glory of Christ, that I would live in order to be fruitful in the lives of others, to be spent for the glory of Christ, that I would live to treasure this glorious Savior, that I would live to exalt Him, and that I would seek so far as I am able to be spent in fruitful labor for His glory. This must be the center of the Christian's passions. This must be the center of our aspirations, the reason we love this life. There are many blessings in life, but the reason we love this life is not achievements, it's not fun, it's not entertainment, though we thank God for all of His good gifts. No, to live is Christ. He is our great consuming passion. You know, sometimes I see this, pastors can become known for a ministry that centers on a particular theme or message other than Christ. Uh, some favorite doctrine or some cultural issue or denouncing a particular threat. In Sovereign Grace churches, and I know that John shares this great passion of mine, we have resolved to always make our main theme the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the center of our passions. We live for Him. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. John Eady in his commentary explains this saying to live as Christ in this way. Consider this. He says, for me to live as Christ, the preaching of Christ 
the business of my life, the presence of Christ, the cheer of my life, the image of Christ, the crown of my life, the spirit of Christ, the life of my life, the love of Christ, the power of my life, the will of Christ, the law of my life, and the glory of Christ, the end of my life. To live is Christ. Let every Christian make this his or her anthem and say to live is Christ. Life in the flesh. What does that mean? It means fruitful labor for Christ. God intends each one of you Christians to live for the fruitfulness of others, fruitful labor. God intends you to contribute to the progress and joy of others in the faith. That means that you, if to live is Christ, it means you want to help others be more like Christ. We want to help others find more joy in Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. We honor Christ in death when we come to that place that we consider nearness to Him more precious than all of what this world has to offer. Earlier this year, my friend Alan Redrup, who was one of the founding pastors of Covenant Fellowship Church. You guys are coming up on celebrating 10 years. Covenant Fellowship Church was planted in 1984 by two men, Bill Patton and Alan Redrup. And Alan Redrup, one of our founding pastors, um, battled years of sickness and was in very poor health. He and his wife, Linda, were earlier this year asking that if the Lord wills, that the Lord would take him quickly. It had been over a year that he was unable to even make it to church or to leave his house. And he'd spent m many months bedridden and was on hospice. And so they had shared uh, that... Um, that friends and family would pray that the Lord would, would take him quickly. And I couldn't, it's a difficult thing to pray. And I wrestled to pray that, but pray that if it be the Lord's will. Well, I preached this text, to live as Christ and to die as gain earlier this year. And wouldn't you know it, that week, Alan, uh, just a few days later after the preaching of this text, Alan, always eager to apply God's word, He said, I'm going where it's far better. He was ready for gain, and he is now with Christ. And I can assure you that it is far better for him. And to all who have lost loved ones in Christ, take this great comfort with you that to die is gain. That when we die, we go where God and glory shine. We dwell with Christ for all eternity. Martin Lloyd-Jones, my historical hero and my dad's historical hero as well, when he was on his deathbed in his old age, at a similar place to where Alan Redrup was, he, his family and friends gathered around him and he said, as the, the fiery preacher you can imagine, he said, don't pray for healing, don't hold me back from the glory. To be with Christ is far better. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Alec Motier says that for the Christian, death is a glorious possession of Christ. Life is a glorious bearing of fruit. And so I want to encourage each one of you, Christians, make this your motto. Make this the thing that you put over all of life. To live is Christ and to die is gain. It was in 2006 that one of my 
modern-day heroes of the faith, John Piper, was battling cancer. And the evening before his surgery, he wrote a reflection called, Don't Waste Your Cancer. And I want to share with you part of what uh, this giant of the faith, John Piper, said that, that evening before his surgery. He said, you will waste your cancer if you think that beating cancer means staying alive rather than cherishing Christ. Satan's and God's designs in your cancer are not the same. Satan designs to destroy your love for Christ. God designs to deepen your love for Christ. And then here it is. Cancer does not win if you die. It wins if you fail to cherish Christ. You see, this is the whole goal of the Christian life. This is the deliverance, to cherish Christ, to not abandon Christ. Christian, don't waste your suffering. This will turn out for your deliverance. No one can take this victory from you. No hardship can deprive you of the opportunity to honor Jesus Christ. Your present suffering and every future trial that you will possibly face in this life will turn out for your deliverance. How? Because through the prayers of the people of God and through the help of the Holy Spirit, you will be strengthened with full courage, now as always, to honor Christ in your life. Because we are those, the people of God, whose anthem is to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so let the joy of the Lord fill our souls today. Let the hope of the gospel come alive in our hearts. It's a win-win situation. It's a win-win situation. To live is Christ and to die is gain. May this glorious Savior be honored in our lives now and in whatever the future may hold. Let's pray together. Father, what great and glorious reasons you have given us for an unshakable hope in you. We thank you for the gift of your Son which has secured this hope that is unperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Lord, you've given us a hope. You've given us a future. And so I ask and we pray now, Lord, with hearts full of faith that for each one of us, you would give us that same outlook that you granted to the Apostle Paul the ability to look at his circumstances and to see where you are at work, glorifying your name, advancing the gospel through us, and to be able to look to an unknown future, even at times a fearful future, and to be able to say, yes, I will rejoice, to be able to say, this will turn out for my deliverance. Lord, would you grant us that confidence? that we may be firm in our faith, that we may trust not our own strength, not our own wisdom, not our own resources, but trust in your might, trust in your goodness, trust that you are at work in us to empower us to glorify you, whether in life or in death. We pray this in Jesus' name.